Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Raff. I'm Monish Raff here at Keller and Heckman, and I am joining you from Keller and Heckman's offices in Washington, D.C. And I am joined today by my colleague, Javane Nakumaram. Javane, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Uh, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Javane is an OSHA attorney here in Keller and Heckman, and those of you who have been participating in the OSHA 3030 for some time uh, would recognize her name and voice. Uh, this is actually a very special OSHA 3030. This, I believe, is the 50th episode of the OSHA 3030. We started in August of 2013, to my recollection, and that would make this episode the 50th episode of the OSHA 3030. And I think that's extraordinary. There are not a lot of programs on any subject or in any area of law that can say that they've put together 50 regularly intervaled programs uh, or have been that consistent, have never missed a single episode, no matter how heavy the litigation schedule or other work schedules have become, and have done this 50 times in a row on 50 distinct subjects. So I am very proud of the team here at Keller and Heckman, including our other attorneys who have participated in this program over the years, David Servati and Larry Halpern, whom all of you know, Peter Dela Cruz, uh, Javane Nakumaram, our staff who have helped produce the program, including Aaron Sipoli Beck, who's with us and uh, today as our producer today and has been our uh, producer for, I think, all or almost all of the programs and everyone else in our uh, staff as well. So thank you to all of you who have uh, helped bring this program to fruition 50 times in a row. Uh, with that said, the prior 49 programs are on our website, khlaw.com, and you can find them on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Some great topics. Many of them are still timely, uh, although the purpose of the program is to bring you topical uh, current developments in OSHA law that are uh, impactful on your in-house counsel or safety and health uh, program. Uh, the, there are a great many of the programs that you can find on our website that are still helpful and relevant to you as in-house counsel or safety and health professionals in your companies. Uh, the key feature to this program is that it's complimentary to you, and the only thing we ask is when you get the invitations, please forward them on to two or three other in-house counsel or safety and health professionals at your organization or other organizations uh, that you think might benefit from being a part of our community. So with that said, we have a great topic today. It is the topic uh, that I think is on almost everyone's minds, the pending compliance deadline for the electronic record-keeping rule. And with that said, it was initially slated to be uh, in effect this summer, this past summer, and they've suggested that they might delay that rule to December 1, uh, but that has not really been finalized. So with that said, what we'll talk about today is first we'll give you a brief overview of the record-keeping uh, rule and talk about the electronic record-keeping uh, rule in particular called the Improved Tracking Rule, which was promulgated a couple of years ago, uh, over a year and a half ago, uh, and will now become effective with the compliance date potentially of December 1, and talk about what that means for employers. 
In addition, there are some special considerations that I think we've got to discuss, uh, although at each workplace you'll have to figure out some of those special considerations for yourselves and with you in uh, concert with your OSHA attorney. So with that said, let's get into it. Chavane, the OSH Act is somewhat of a unique in that it not only um, had to be promulgated as a specific rule, but it has its own feature within the Act itself. That's right, Manish. Um, Section 8 of the OSH Act, it specifically requires employers to maintain accurate records of work-related injuries and illnesses, um, and it requires employers to retain those records for five years. And so when it requires uh, employers to maintain records of injuries and illnesses, this excludes minor injuries requiring only first aid treatment. And uh, these minor injuries cannot involve medical treatment, the loss of consciousness, the restrictions on work or motion, or job tra or um, any injuries that result in the transfer of it to another job. And so uh, Section 1904 of the regulations, uh, which Section 8 of the OSH, OSH Act authorizes, uh, specifically requires that employers with more than 10 employees in most industries to keep these records. Uh, and so employers with fewer than 10 employees or employers in low hazard industries, they're exempt from these requirements. So when we say fewer than 10 employees, we mean uh, that the employer has fewer than 10 employees at all times during the calendar year. So it's important when you calculate the number of employees uh, that you take the whole calendar year into account to make sure uh, if you are subject to the regulation. Um, Shavani, this is a really important point, and to start off with one of the more important points is, you know, when you distinguish this NYSE Section 1904 from what I'll call health and safety standards, it is a regulation that has its own distinct congressional authority elsewhere in the Act that specifically empowered OSHA to promulgate this specific regulation. And the reason I think that's important is because OSHA may not promulgate any regulation without congressional authority to do so, and uh, the regulation that it does promulgate has to fit within the scope of the congressional authority from that act or some other act. And so, so I think that's an important point to keep in mind, specifically when we talk about the improved tracking rule and some of its various features, which we'll discuss going on, uh, forward. That's right, Manish. Um, I'll also note that for employers required to keep these records, they have to enter each recordable injury or illness uh, within seven calendar days of receiving this information. And uh, OSHA can see these records or they can access these records upon inspection or um, OSHA also can see this information when it does its annual OSHA injury and illness survey of 10 or more employers. And also BLS collects this information through its annual survey of occupational injuries and illnesses. So before uh, the record keeping rule, the improved tracking rule, uh, that is the way that OSHA would gather this information from employers. So it was either through BLS or through inspections. But with this new record keeping rule, uh, now OSHA is going to have all of this information on demand. So Middle of last year, OSHA finalized its improved tracking 
of workplace injuries and illnesses rule. And they had put forth a compliance deadline for this summer, uh, which is subsequently uh, something they've proposed uh, setting back to December 1. But essentially, the improved tracking rule uh, requires employers to take all the information that they would have been required to uh, record on the OSHA Form 300, the 301 incident report, or the or, or similar form, uh, or the Form 300A summary, and now upload that same information uh, electronically if they are within certain described uh, establishments, if, if the establishment that needs to keep these records uh, fits certain uh, criteria. That process on its face may streamline or modernize the process of keeping paper records and having OSHA come on site and physically inspect them. Now the employer has to upload them onto uh, OSHA's web portal uh, to upload that same information. So now OSHA can just access it whenever it likes by tapping into its own database that the employers have all uploaded their data into. Uh, but OSHA didn't stop there. It also suggested that it would retain the rights to publish that data on its on a website that was available to the public. And that portion of its grant concept uh, arguably is not something that Congress had empowered OSHA to do. In fact, it seems to me to be directly contrary to OSHA's own stated purpose in the preamble of its own regulation. Then another feature of the improved tracking rule that I think is important for all employers to keep their eyes on, OSHA has opined that uh, separate from this electronic uploading of data, that any incentive plan or any efforts that an employer might make that might have an incidental inhibitory effect on an employer on, on an employee's interest in reporting an injury or an illness to an employer would be considered retaliatory. Uh, this is a sort of n new or novel understanding of retaliation, which typically in the history of retaliation law has described an act or omission by an employer that is in reaction to a protected act uh, by an employee or protected conduct by an employee. Now OSHA has, is saying that the concept of retaliation also includes anything that might preemptively have an inhibitory effect on an employee from taking a protected act. Uh, and I do think that's a novel interpretation of the concept of retaliation and therefore may be subject to revisitation uh, judiciarily. And in fact, both these last features are uh, currently under review by courts. The publication feature and other aspects of the record, the improved tracking rule are being visited by the uh, federal court in Oklahoma and the retaliation interpretation by OSHA is being visited by the federal court in Texas. So with that said, uh, let us just focus for the purpose of this OSHA 3030 on the electronic record keeping compliance uh, features of the improved tracking rule. So OSHA has 
described the, the data that needs to go into the Form 300, Form 301, and the 300A as data that needs to be uploaded electronically. Uh, with that said, OSHA uh, has, has defined which employers have to participate in this electronic record-keeping requirement, and it's based on uh, the size of the establishment, for one. Javane, if you are able to advance to the next slide. Yes, here we go. So, uh, as Manish mentioned, the requirements for what information you have to submit electronically to OSHA depend on the number of employees you have in an establishment. So, and so the regulation divides these requirements into two different categories. So, so it's establishments with 250 or more employees or establishments with, uh, with, 20, to, with 20 to 249 employees. So, so let's start with establishments with 250 or more employees. So, so these establishments, and uh, so again, if you have 250 or more employees, at any time within the calendar year and you're in a covered industry, then you must electronically submit Form 300A, the information from Form 300A annually. So as Manish discussed, the first compliance deadline was supposed to be July 1st, 2017. However, OSHA had some issues with its uh, electronic uh, reporting websites. The website was not up and running until August 1st, so, and also OSHA experienced um, an issue with the portal because they discovered about mid-August that the site had been hacked. Uh, but since then, they have resolved those issues, uh, and so the website is up and running now. Um, and so OSHA issued a notice of proposed rulemaking to push the first compliance deadline to December 1st, 2017. Uh, and so following that, uh, the next deadline to submit information from the 2017 Form 300A will be July 1st, 2018. And then the deadline beginning 2019 and every year thereafter will be March 2nd. Uh, and then also if you are, uh, you know, for employers with 250 or more employees, or excuse me, establishments with 250 or more employees, not only do you have to submit Form 300A, but you also have to submit Forms 300 and 301 annually. And the first deadline for those won't be until July 1st, 2018, and then uh, beginning 2019 and thereafter, March 2nd. And so uh, also uh, for establishments with 20 to 249 employees, uh, if you are in a, quote, high hazard industry, your requirements are outlined in the slide below. So you have to submit Form 300A annually, and the deadlines are the same uh, as for employers with 250 or more. And once again, it's important here to note that this only applies to employers with 20 to 249 employees and if you are in a high hazard industry. So what do we mean by a high hazard industry? Um, so OSHA has defined high hazard industries based on various NAICS codes. And so uh, 
if you go to OSHA's website, they have the full list, and so it's important to uh, to check that list and make sure you you are on that list so, uh, to determine your requirements. So, so some examples of high hazard industries that OSHA selected were uh, agriculture, forestry, construction, manufacturing, grocery stores, warehousing and storage, utilities, etc. So again, for employers, it's important to identify uh, what kind of establishments uh, you have and also determine the dominant economic activity at the establishment. So, and so knowing, uh, knowing your NAICS code is going to be helpful to see if you are in a high hazard industry and therefore would be subject to the regulation. So there's a long list that OSHA has published of the NAICS codes that it views as high hazard industries. And it's important for employers to first identify what they believe to be the NAICS code that properly describes their particular establishments. Once an employer has done that, it should look up that NAICS code on OSHA's list of high hazard industries to determine whether or not they believe uh, they're on that list. And I think it's really important to not uh, short circuit that process because uh, there are a lot of NASCS codes that would probably surprise you as being on the high hazard industries list. Lots of healthcare NASCS codes, like hospitals, ambulatory care, even residential care facilities, lots of retail establishments, including predominantly, I think grocery stores comes forefront to mind, warehousing, storage. Uh, there are almost every manufacturing NAICS code. Uh, there are NAICS codes that are included in agriculture and forestry that would probably surprise em uh, employers to find that they're high hazard. Um, there's others on this list that we haven't put on the slide uh, that would fit as well. Tire manufacturers uh, or tire, uh, other aspects of the tire supply chain uh, and automotive industry supply chain are on this list. So. So it's important to look up your NAICS code and make a determination uh, first what NAICS code you belong to for each of your establishments and then whether it's on this list. Uh, probably one of the most important things you can do before you determine your obligations under the improved tracking rule. So with that said, let's talk about the compliance schedule. Uh, Javanay has given you some of the dates uh, that we're looking at, and they're bifurcated. If you're a large employer, 250 or more employees, there's a deadline for uploading data from the 300A form, and then there's another deadline for the forms 300 and 301, uh, or forms that are similar to the 301. So that applies to large employers, 250 or more employees at an establishment. Uh, if you are establishment has 20 to 249 employees, then for the Form 300A, we're looking at uh, a altogether different obligation, but the same kind of deadlines. December 1 for the Form 300A for 2016. Thereafter, uh, the deadline moves to July 1 in, for 2017 data. It would move to July 1 of 2018, and after that, the deadline's March 2nd for data including in, uh, 2018 data and going forward. With that said, there are also state plan state problems that employers will have to face. Some states have not 
promulgated their state plan state equivalent rule. Uh, as many of you know, we practice not only in the federal OSHA states, but have done work in all or almost all of the state plan states. Uh, and one of the requirements for these states is to promulgate a similar rule within six months. So if you are a multi-state employer, as many or most of our clients are, it's important that you look at your requirements both under the federal states as well as the state plan states in which you operate to see whether or not those states have, in fact, promulgated their rules. Uh, the rule does allow for you to engage third parties to submit your data. Ultimately, it's the employer and not the third-party vendor who's responsible for making sure the information is accurate and that it's uploaded in a timely fashion or that you've met the deadlines. The only other thing I'll say about this is it's important to, to remember that it's not the Form 300 or the Form 300A or the information from the Form 301 or equivalent that you need to upload. It's the information that would have otherwise been uploaded the information that would have otherwise been recorded on these forms that has to be uploaded under this new rule. And the employee's name is not amongst the types of information that needs to be uploaded electronically. That should be excluded when you upload electronic data. Uh, you do have to follow the uh, process for an identifier that, and you have to keep a uh, key on your premises so that if OSHA conducts an inspection, they can uh, identify whether who, who the employee is. Those are the, I think, key features for compliance and the compliance schedule. Uh, then I think it's important to identify, as we've said before, the establishment that you're looking at and whether or not, first of all, it fits the list of NIACS codes that are high hazard, and second of all, uh, to try and understand how many employees are at that establishment so that you can determine whether or not you're at 20, below 20, or between 20 and 249, or 250 or greater. That largely depends on how you define your establishment. Javane? That's right, Manish. So first of all, OSHA clarifies uh, in the final rule that an establishment is a single physical location where business is conducted, um, and then services or industrial operations are performed. So as Manish said, it's important to understand what an establishment is for the purpose of knowing what category you fall under. You know, are you an establishment with 20 to 249 employees or an establishment with 250 or more employees? And also each establishment, um, unless, unless, uh, unless you're exempt, must report, so it's important to know if you are an employer with a campus of multiple establishments, how many of them have to report. Um, OSHA and its uh, FAQs, they, they clarify that employers, you can divide one location into multiple establishments in certain limited circumstances, and those circumstances are if the facility represents a distinctly separate, uh, if each facility represents a distinctly separate business, uh, if each facility is engaged in a different economic activity, uh, if no one industry description applies to the joint activities of the establishments, and um, separate reports are routinely prepared for these establishments, such as sales or receipts, uh, wages and salaries, or other business information. 
Um, and then also employers can combine two or more physical locations into a single establishment if certain factors are met. And so this, these factors include uh, the employer operates the location as a single business operation under common management. Uh, the locations are all located in close proximity of each other. And the employer keeps one set of business records for the locations, such as wages, salaries, sales receipts, et cetera. So, again, um, if you are an employer that has, uh, you know, a large campus of establishments, it's important to figure out if you need to divide any of these up into separate establishments or combine them into a single establishment. So, um, Let me give a plain example, yeah. Javane. Uh, yep. This is really an important point. We can combine two locations if they're adjacent to each other or if they're two buildings on the same property or maybe there is another property right across a public street and they are therefore adjacent to each other. Maybe even a half mile down the road because when you go to the industrial section of certain communities, you might find a space uh, somewhere on a industrial campus, and then you might find more space elsewhere. And so it might require that trucks drive from one place to another. To uh, Material may be deposited at one warehouse, and then there's constant trucking from the warehouse to a manufacturing facility half mile down the road. And OSHA has suggested that when the proximity is that close, that it's possible conceivably to consider them one establishment. Uh, some employers find that advantageous so that they can just keep one set of records. Uh, and the, the, those two seemingly distinct uh, locations are treated under a common safety and health plan, as well as other human resources records, uh, that it makes sense to, to report them together. Uh, but you would not find that to be the case for two properties that are more disparate in uh, distance than that. So OSHA's opined that it's only when they're extremely close. The converse is also important, where employers have two different operations located on one property, they sometimes ask, hey, can we treat these as two different establishments? I've got one property with two things going on. And there may be advantages to that as well. Perhaps there are two operations that if you treat them as two, neither of them will even fit under the 20 employee mm -hmm. threshold. Uh, but combined, they would. Uh, there, it's really important to understand that one of the things that OSHA has opined on is that that would only work if you're looking at two distinct separate businesses. So I think that the first feature that I would look to to see whether or not we can treat these as two establishments is have they been separately incorporated. The other is have they uh, been treated as two separate businesses because they're in two totally different business activities such that there's no one NAICS code that would describe them both. So if you take, for example, a construction site and you might have a lumber mill on the same site, uh, not a lumber mill, but maybe a lumber uh, storage uh, or some other uh, type of lumber operation that is co-located on the same facility. Uh, then the next question I'd ask is, are they separately incorporated or are they engaged in two separate activities? For example, is the lumber facility also selling to employers that aren't that construction site that's co-located? Uh, that kind of thing. And so then you see two totally different economic activities. You see them totally uh, separate in terms of the way they're incorporated, and there's no one NICS code. That might be a description that uh, fits the model where you can treat them as two different establishments. 
But if you have two different activities going on under the same corporation, and they do sort of feed each other, for example, you've set up lumber milling operations on a construction site because it's feeding lumber to the construction activity, and it's all, again, one incorporated entity, then it would be much more difficult to argue that those should not be treated as the same establishment for the purpose of figuring out whether you've got more than 20 employees. Uh, and therefore, for the purpose of figuring out whether you fit under the electronic uploading of data uh, under the improved tracking rule. Uh, so I think that that sort of gives you a little bit of color to the rules, Javanay, that you were describing. Would you agree? Yes. Um, and the other thing I'll note, Manish, is you know not only understanding what an establishment is, but also understanding how to count your employees within each establishment is equally important to determining whether or not you're under this regulation or not. So, and so we, we have up here that the, uh, you know, how, what, who's an employee? Uh, how do you count employees in each establishment? So, so you, like we said before, you have to count the maximum number of employees during the calendar year. Uh, and employees include not only full-time employees, but also part-time, seasonal, and temporary workers. So, again, you have to count all of these, potential, um, you know, employees within the calendar year to determine, um, you know, do you have under 20 or do you have between 20 and 249 or do you have more than 250 uh, employees in your establishment? We have a lot of questions that have come in, and we're going to try and address some, not all of them. So if you, listening to some of these questions and answers, don't hear your question being addressed and would like to discuss this further, feel free to reach out to us. We we certainly don't mind uh, taking on simple black letter law, statements of law. Uh, frankly, nothing to me not mind. Uh, this is OSHA law. I love OSHA law. I love chatting about it. So you're always welcome to reach out. One of the first questions we got was, uh, is, litigation, is the litigation that I described in Texas and Oklahoma likely to delay or rescind the requirements for the Forms 300 and 300, uh, 301 electronic submissions? And I'd say no. Uh, that is likely to delay enforcement perhaps on the question of uh, of the incentive plans or whether or not they constitute retaliation. It's likely to potentially uh, delay the publication to the public of the data that employers are privately uploading electronically, but I don't think that I'm seeing any indication that OSHA is delaying what it is looking to propose as a December 1 compliance deadline. Uh, the next, I hope that answers that question. The next qu uh, question is, I know some state plan states have not uh, adopted the rule yet, so uh, the question is, do we need to report? And there are some NAICS codes that don't have to report, clearly. Only the high-hazard industry NAICS codes have to report if we're looking at employers between 20 and 249. So I hope that answers that question. Uh, does the question goes on to say, if you look at the ITA, which is the web portal, uh, and you start and enter information, but it doesn't fall into a category that has to report, does the ITA web portal inform you that you don't have to report? I haven't personally gotten that far in entering any data, not being an establishment that has an obligation to report, but merely being an attorney. So I hope others can chime in on an answer to that. But my guess would be, no, the ITA doesn't opine on whether you have a duty to uh, uh, electronically upload information, it 
merely allows you to upload the information. Uh, that's a, su a subject that you should consult with your own OSHA attorney to determine whether or not you even have, whether or not you even have this obligation or fit the requirements, uh, fit the scope of the rules so that you're required to upload the data. And if you're not, you should make that determination with your OSHA attorney so you don't get any further down the road. We also have a comment, and this is one of the great things about the OSHA 3030 and its community, is that we have a comment from somebody from what I understand to be Indiana's state plan state, and they've pointed out, uh, hey, Monash, just wanted to make sure, and, and by the way, this is a, a long-standing uh, and loyal participant in the OSHA 3030 communities, and we're grateful for your participation, but we're particularly grateful for your input here. I believe that this participant uh, and community member is actually from Indiana's Department of Labor and commented, uh, hey, I just wanted to make sure you knew that we have adopted in Indiana the identical state plan state rule, but will not enforce the electronic reporting requirements for data from 2017. We will start enforcement for 2017 data or by the July 2018 deadline. So the requirement is up, but the enforcement will begin with the July 2018 deadline for 2017 data. I hope that uh, is of value to all of y'all. I haven't verified it and will be happy to take the word of somebody from the Indiana Department of Labor. Uh, the next question is, look, if we have an establishment, Monish, with two different NACS codes that describe it, which NAICS code do we use for determination of our reporting obligations, or which one do we report on the forms? The answer, we believe, uh, comes from OSHA interpretation, which essentially says look at the dominant economic activity for that facility. And that's gauged by the dollar value of the output of services or goods. Uh, and there are other ways you can measure it, but if you have a reasonable measure for what the predominant economic activity is, that is the NAICS code that describes that establishment for the purpose of the improved tracking rule. I hope, I think these are some great questions and comments that have come in on the chat box. I hope those uh, have been properly addressed here by me. If not, hey, feel free to call me or shoot me an email anytime, as I've said before. And I think you guys know by now, I love chatting about OSHA law. I'll, I'll chat with you guys anytime about it, especially if it's just a simple black letter law question, no charge. Uh, with that said, let's get into the last chapter of every OSHA 3030, the practical discussion of what employers should do in light of this development. The first thing I'd say is, well, OSHA's only proposed a December 1 deadline. I haven't seen where they finalize that. So I would propose to you that you prepare to comply by December 1 with the expectation that that might actually become the final uh, compliance date, and it might. So start getting your preparations in a row. The first thing I'd do is try and understand what an establishment is at your facilities, uh, which operations it includes as a single, singular establishment and which ones can be divided into two different establishments, and to take a headcount at each of these establishments and figure out whether you are below 20, 20 to 249 employees at your establishment, or 215 above. The third thing I'd say is, look, once you've figured all of that out, try and understand uh, if you do have two establishments, uh, if you do have two different activities at one establishment, try and figure out what the predominant economic activity is so that you can properly categorize the NAICS code. This could make a difference because one activity may be not a high hazard activity and the other might be a high hazard industry, uh, and that might make a difference. Uh, the, the fourth thing I'd say is now that you've figured all of that out, 
you can make a determination as to whether or not you're, you fit under the scope of electronic record keeping and to what extent, whether you're just looking at, whether you're looking at all forms, the 300, the 301, and the 300A, or whether you're just looking at the summary in the 300A, the information from the summary in the 300A. Uh, then I would say, look, if you're looking at the 300 and the 301 uh, data, make sure you redact and don't upload details about the employee's identity. Uh, I don't think that the form allows or has a blank for it, but then now you've got to use uh, the tracking system that you'd use for medically sensitive information and keep a separate log to decode that. Uh, I think that this is a great – because there's a possibility that this will all be published to the, and available to the public, I think this is a great opportunity for employers to take much greater care in making recordability determinations, which Avenue described at the beginning, things like first aid, uh, et cetera, should be carefully examined to determine whether or not you have a recordable. Uh, and some employers historically have just inc included everything on the log, whether it was recordable or not, uh, and over-included. And I, I applaud the diligence of those employers, but I think if you're going to be Public, uh, publicly, if that data is going to be publicly available, then I think you, you, that you have a new opportunity to be more scrupulous about only recording or up electronically uploading that which is truly recordable. Uh, finally, I'd say it's really important for you to conduct annual audits uh, of your data to make sure you haven't missed anything. There are some really tricky circumstances that catch employers flat-footed. For example, you may record data but not record it as days away from work and then later find out that there were, in fact, days away from work. Or you may have recorded as days away from work and an employee came back to work, so you knew the days away to, uh, from work to record. Then an employee went back out with complications that resurfaced, and that didn't get updated in the form. And so oftentimes that's just one example of a lot of things that trick people days away from work that go over from one year to another because they transcended the cusp of December 31st uh, sometimes don't get appended to the old uh, forms. And so those also catch employers flat-footed sometimes. So it's important to conduct audits periodically and also to cross-check your uh, forms OSHA forms against other sources like workers' comp or other medical records to make sure that you have data caught elsewhere that uh, is not reflected in your OSHA forms and to update those. Uh, that's been the source of litigation that we have covered here at the OSHA 3030 uh, and the number of uh, how long those records have to be kept up to date has also been the subject of litigation that we've covered here at the OSHA 3030, and those are all available on prior OSHA 3030s on our website. So. I think that covers what we wanted to cover, and in just slightly over 30 minutes, uh, I often uh, kid that we should call this the OSHA 30, about 30, uh, because we don't always nail it in 30 minutes. But we've we've been pretty consistent about doing this in about 30 days and in about 30 minutes. For more information about OSHA law developments, you can catch us on Twitter, at Rathmonish. Uh, this program, along with many of our past year or two years' worth of programs, are available as podcasts on your uh, favorite podcast station. I, I use iTunes, uh, and if you subscribe, they just get automatically downloaded as a podcast. That way you don't have to be on your, at your desk. But they're also available on our website with the slides and audio uh, corresponding so you can see an automated slideshow, which I think is pretty cool as well. Both of those are pretty cool ways to catch OSHA 3030s that you might miss, and both of them will be available in about a day or two. So check back on our website for the slide audio combination or at your podcast uh, app 
uh, in about a day or two for this program. You can forward that on to others as well who might have missed this program. And we're also available at LinkedIn, both for Monash RAF and for our firm's workplace safety and health site on LinkedIn. With that said, I'm grateful to all of you for participating in the OSHA 3030. I'm grateful to Javane Nakumaram uh, for participating with me. All right. Thank you, Manish. And I'm grateful to all of the other OSHA attorneys, Larry Halpern, David Cervati, Peter Dela Cruz, and others who make this program possible and who have uh, contributed content, even if they were not speakers. So thank you to, to those of you on my team. And uh, I look forward to seeing – and to thank all of you for participating, and I look forward to seeing all of you next month at 1 p.m., November 29. Uh, that's 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, until then, I look forward to hearing from you if you have questions. And – Look forward to staying in touch. Stay safe.